Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, listener mail. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and it's Monday. We're bringing you messages that you sent us. Now we're reading them back to you. Uh, Rob, do you want to start off today with a couple of these emails related to our end of December episodes? Yes, let's uh, let's call Carney the mailbot over here. He is he's decked out in the last of his Christmas regalia here. He needs um, a bath. That that Santa <laughs> suit really needs to be washed. It's getting kind of oily right. now, but uh, yeah. But we're yeah, I, I think he's almost over it for the year, and we'll be ready to move on to Valentine's Day soon. Yeah, yeah. This this will hopefully round out the the, the Christmas feedback here. So this one comes to us from Andrew. Andrew writes, first, I'd like to say thank you for putting on a great podcast. As one of your fellow iHeart hosts might say, it's real aces. <laughs> Wait, who says I that? which one that is. Yeah. Maybe Josh and Chuck? Yeah. Hmm. Either way, I'll take it. Uh, I must admit, I am a few episodes behind on your show as I follow a lot of different pods and deleting an unlistened to pod hurts just a little bit deep down, even if it's a few weeks old. I was recently listening to your Christmas tree episode and had to write in concerning bubble lights. My grandmother was the proud owner of many beautiful and some not-so-beautiful antique Christmas decorations, among which were several bubble lights. These did not decorate the tree, but were instead standalone decorations, which could be directly plugged into an outlet. They were most commonly used as night lights in the bathrooms and bedrooms around the holidays. The lights were shaped more or less like an inverted cartoon toadstool, with the red and green plastic cap covering a small light bulb and a thin glass cylinder extending upward, ending in a rounded point. The glass was colored red or was filled with a red liquid. I can't recall which. I can remember being mesmerized by these as a little kid and even touching the liquid-containing tube. That thing was pretty dang hot, and I'm glad I didn't come in contact with the liquid inside. Sadly, Grandma passed away a few years ago, but for all I know, these decorations are in a box somewhere in the house where my grandpa still lives. I will have to mention uh, it next time I talk with my family. Thanks, Andrew. P.S. Absolutely loving the Weird House Cinema episodes, and I've actually seen two of the movies you've covered so far. In pre-COVID times, I would gather around twice a year with friends for B-movie nights. One of the attendees is a self-proclaimed B-movie buff and owned a DVD, yes, an actual DVD, of Troll 2. It was a delight to watch, and I loved your insight. Furthermore, my wife and I were happy to find Chopping Mall on Vudu. That's V-U-D-U. That's a, like an online film rental thing, I believe. This past October, during our annual binge of campy horror movies, this did not disappoint. I know Christmas is now past, but I would love to suggest the holiday B-movie Silent Night, Deadly Night 2. It is definitely one of my favorite crap films, and I still quote it often when the trash needs taken out. I think that's referring to a to an iconic scene from the film where a a killer walks up to someone who's taking out the garbage and just says garbage day and then shoots him dead. <laughs> Have you seen that one? Uh no, I think the only ones I've seen were the later weirder ones. The one that was it Brian Yunza did where Brian Mickey Yuzna? Rooney is yeah. a demented toy maker. Oh, yes, yes, yes. I think we did watch that. We, we did watched that for like trailer for, talk or something um, for trailer talk on on YouTube back in back in the day. Yeah, uh, so I don't know. We could always re-explore. There's some of those trailer talk movies I'd love to to come back and give more attention to. I'm not sure if that's the one, but it definitely stands out as a, a weird Christmas movie. Andrew, I'm interested in this tradition of using bubble lights as night lights for trips to the bathroom, and that sounds like that would 
induce some serious hypnagogia as you're like going back to bed and you've had a psychedelic <laughs> experience while urinating. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, if, certainly, if you uncover more about uh, your uh, your late grandmother's uh, bubble lights, we'd we'd love to to see some pictures of them or some uh, footage of them in action. Uh, and then also on the point about being backed up on pods, I just want to uh, say to everybody out there, you know, we realize there are a lot of podcasts out there to listen to, especially now. I mean, more than ever. Like mm-hmm. Every every celebrity has one uh, in addition to all the podcasts that existed before. And so there's a, just a lot to listen to. So we feel honored that, that any of you, you know, still keep us in rotation, that we're still a part of your, your uh, you know, daily, weekly, or monthly listening life, uh, whatever that consists of and however technology is forcing you to uh, interact with us. It truly warms my heart every time someone would give us an hour that they could be spending listening to the reunion of the cast of Hawaii Five-0. <laughs> Talk it's probably a great podcast. I don't know. All right, let's move on to the next one here. This one is titled Lock and Key, and it comes to us from Jim. Hey, guys, I've been listening to your show for about a year and love it. A great blend of educational and nerd humor. Speaking of nerds, I played D&D back in the late 70s, early 80s. I have a first edition of Deities and Demigods with the uh, uh, Mel Nibonian. Uh, I believe that's in reference, in reference to uh, but, uh, Michael Moorcock's Elric uh, stories. Uh, Melnimity. I'm, I'm never sure how to, how to pronounce the name of that uh, that world. But then also the Cthulhu mythos, he mentions, uh, continues. And I'm now playing the latest version with my kids, 12, 17, and 20. Whoa. My daughter told me about a class called an artificer. Uh, and when you mentioned coming up with a D&D character for Rain Borg, the Swedish lock collector, I decided to let you know about this class. Quote, Masters of Invention. Artificers use ingenuity and magic to unlock extraordinary capabilities in objects. Jim, P.S. My mother grew up in St. John's, Newfoundland, and I have been there several times. If you ever visit, you should hike the East Coast Trail. Much of it is along gorgeous cliffs. I saw a whale and an iceberg. <laughs> ah. Now, uh, this is uh, numerous great points in here. So uh, that, that particular new class... Uh, I, I have only a little bit of uh, experience with that. We briefly had somebody in our D&D group that used that class. They were like a gnome that had some sort of a, uh, a high-tech cannon that marched around with them or something. Mm. Um, but that's all that I've run into uh, on that front. But I know you could also, I guess you could also with Rain Borg, you could go with a, uh, like a, you know, you could still go with a traditional rogue build and just really dedicate yourself to certain uh, like uh, traps and locks, special specialties like Dungeon Delver and so forth. As for Newfoundland, um, yeah, I've, I haven't been back since I was a, a child, but if I ever do, I'll have to look up that trail. I'd love to return at some point. I know I laughed at the sentence where Jim said, I saw a whale and an iceberg, but uh, but but actually I get it. If you ever just happen to see um, a marine mammal in the wild in a place, especially if you're not used to seeing them normally, it is a, a, a very powerful ex- uh, experience. I I still sometimes just think about not too long ago when I happened to unexpectedly see, uh, I think they were dolphins, I guess they would have been dolphins or porpoises, uh, but probably dolphins, Mm -hmm. splashing around in this kind of marshy estuary way back from the coast along coastal Georgia uh, that I, I totally didn't expect at all. I was, you know, so this is a place with like, you know, uh, tall grass and mud and the water that's there, especially at low tide is probably not more than a few feet deep. Uh, but, but yeah, for some reason there were, there were dolphins, uh, making a ruckus. 
Yeah, yeah. Anytime you get to see creatures like that in their natural habitat, it's it, it can be a real magical experience. And as far as icebergs go, I, I'd love to to see one as an adult because when I was a kid in Newfoundland, you know, there'd be icebergs. It seems like all the time. I remember mm-hmm. adults pointing icebergs out to me. And, um, you know, at the time you're a kid, you don't really care. It's like taking a kid to see the Grand Canyon. They don't, they're not really that connected with checking it out. Uh, so I'd love to, to see one again as an adult. That would be neat. I was about to say, I mean, I wonder with, uh, with warming climate, if they're becoming less common, but actually if anything, I, I, I wonder if actually it would go the opposite way, if they would become more common because more ice is calving off of the, the fixed shelves and floating away. Yeah, good point. I don't know. Maybe we should look into that. Yeah, I mean, icebergs alone could be a great topic. Uh, there's a lot of science there. There's a lot of history. I mean, we got it. I guess we touched on it a little bit when we were uh, doing piecrete because mm-hmm. there was the idea of like, well, let's just get a, what if we tried to make ships out of icebergs, et cetera. All right. Now, a couple of people responded to the part of our lock and key episode where we were asking the question of like, wait a minute. So if you're just talking about like mass produced commercial locks and keys, how unique are they? You know, like Mm -hmm. to what lengths do they go to make sure that one key they manufacture doesn't accidentally open the wrong lock? Uh, Well, we heard from a couple of people about this and the messages we heard were not the most reassuring. Um Marsh Marsh writes in to say about locks. When it comes to Ford cars and trucks, on more than one occasion, I locked my keys in the car and the key of a random passerby opened my door. A lot of factors play into the equation. Where on the key, where on the lock, and how much giggling you do. Love the show, Marsh. Uh, I'm that had they have to mean <laughs> jiggling, right? Yeah, that's, as they said to, giggling, as but supposed to, <laughs> <laughs> that really gets it open. I mean, sometimes giggling really leads you to seem jiggling. like a mad thief, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? It's very suspicious yeah. if you're the person uh, at this door that is clearly not your own, and you're just laughing maniacally while you uh, uh, jiggle your key around inside. But. You're rogue thief class, but you've been hit with the Joker gas, and so you're yeah. just uh, <laughs> nonstop giggling all the way to the grave. Yep, indefinite madness. Well, Marsh, I do not know how accurate your claim is here, but uh, if you are right, that is a little worrying. All right, this next one comes to us from Mitch. Mitch is responding on the discussion module, which I, I don't think we've mentioned uh, very recently. But if you still go to the Facebook, there is a group called the Stuff to Blow Your Mind discussion module. And that's a place where uh, listeners uh, can gather and discuss Stuff to Blow Your Mind and Weird House. And I pop in there from time to time still, um, uh, you know, to, despite my, my deeper desire to to leave Facebook behind. I still go there. Uh, so anyway, it's a place you can go and, uh, and comment. And this is what uh, Mitch had to say over at the discussion module. Quote, so I was just listening to the recent Key and, po- key and Lock podcast. I almost said Key and Peel podcast. Uh, <laughs> and when they mentioned the uniqueness of modern key locks, it reminded me of a very funny story about my first apartment. I moved out of my mom's house. And when I got the keys to my apartment, I kept them on my set of car keys separate from my mom's house keys, which was on my set of work keys. A week after moving in, I just threw habit. I used my mom's key on my apartment and the lock opened. I didn't realize until I uh, changed and felt 
my car keys in my pocket that I had used my mom's keys to open the door. Very confused, I compared the keys, and they were identical. I did some research, and it turns out that this particular lock had a set of something like 64 different keys. And it just so happened that my first apartment had the same identical lock as my mom's house. See, now this is interesting because you start getting into sort of the the chances that one key, the key to one lock would open another lock. Mm -hmm. And I feel like... If you were playing Dungeons and Dragons, your dungeon master might just completely shut you down if you were like, I want to roll, see if my key opens this lock, you know? There's got there's there's gonna be a chance. At least give me like a one in a hundred chance, and they might be like, No, 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 you've got the wrong key. It doesn't never works in video games. That's a good point. What what if it did work in video games? That that would be kind of great. Like you could just roll the dice with uh trying random keys on the wrong doors. Yeah, but it it it, it would probably break the order of a lot of games right oh, the idea true. that that keys have specific locks and locks have specific keys and if that is not true then uh you know it's like the order falls out of this uh simulated universe but it's kind of a false order it's like it's not an order that we have in 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 the real world uh oh this is actually this raises something that i have thought about talking about on the podcast before which is a a question about narratives that comes up specifically in video games, which is that um, video games will often use different kinds of lengths to go to different kinds of lengths and use different kinds of devices to ensure that you, to some degree, stay on the correct path of the narrative, right? If it's a video game right. where you can go to different places, they want to try to keep you from going to the place you need to go at the end of the game first, right? You know, they, they mm-hmm. want you to follow a certain kind of story. And and I wonder about how that affects the idea of narrative and how narrative sinks in with us and how that's different from, you know, just a book where you assume somebody will just read one page at a time. Yeah, because you still, you know, you want to create like a wide open feel for a world, but then also you have a story that needs to be uh, followed or you have characters that need to be engaged with or developed. And so, yeah, you create a lot of, of sort of artificial uh, choices a lot of the times, or, mm-hmm. or sometimes it takes the form of speaking of locks and keys, whether you're playing something like uh, like that new cyberpunk game, or if you're playing something like, uh, you know, classic Silent Hill, you know, you encounter locked doors that clearly cannot be unlocked because they're not truly doors. They're just right. pretend doors to create the idea that there are other rooms in this compound or other businesses in this city. But really, there's nothing there. Well, yeah, and th- that highlights the issue that whenever we experience a story whenever we engage in a story we're having to do so sort of by consent like we're agreeing mentally to be a part of this narrative to take it as real to suspend disbelief and all that kind of stuff but that gets into funny territory where if you if you're sort of doing that every time you play a story-driven video game, but you're also testing the limits. So you're sort of like going both ways, negotiating your own level of engagement with the story on its terms. If you're kind of trying to like, oh, can I get in here, this place I'm not supposed to go, you know, where the Elder Sage did not tell me to travel next? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it gets it gets interesting. I don't know. And of course, it depends on the world that's being created. Like, I don't know, in, this, in like Silent Hill 2, which was a game I, I, I really loved back in the day, and in a way, in that world, locked doors that go nowhere, that, where there's nothing on the other side, that, that feels kind of fitting because mm-hmm. you're in this this strange reality that is kind of wedged between our world and another. So it, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of setting, it makes sense that you have false doors to nowhere. Nightmare logic, yeah. Okay, are you ready for this next message from Fritters? 
Let's do it. Fritters writes in about Poochie. Guys, when you were discussing Poochies in the wild, I'm surprised no one thought of Scrappy-Doo. He may not have been a complete amalgam of what the kids are into, but he was a rebellious kid character added for no good reason that everyone universally dislikes. Uh, and then here's a word. Maybe I'm not familiar with this expression. Ganbata, G-A-N-B-A-T-T-E. Is that, I think that might be in another language. Uh, fritters. Well, Fritters, I, I absolutely recall Scrappy-Doo, and even as a child, I remember loathing Scrappy-Doo. I feel like, you know, I was watching Cartoon Network when I was in elementary school, and, and a Scooby-Doo episode with Scrappy-Doo came on. I remember that sinking feeling of like, oh, no. Yeah, because I, I remember this as well, because I never knew what Scooby-Doo episode I was going to be treated to. Yeah. Would it be the, the old the old episodes or would it be the Scrappy-Doo episodes? And yeah, Scrappy-Doo was just awful. Like he added nothing to it. He just took away from all the other characters and he just looked dumb too. Mm-hmm. So I would agree that Scrappy-Doo is is perhaps one of the purer examples of Poochie that we could we could probably point to. All right, uh, here's another one. This one comes to us from Scott, uh, responding to the artifact episode that I did about uh, Dr. John D. and his mirror or mirrors. Scott writes, hey, guys, I enjoyed your show on Dr. D. and his mirror, as I do all of your shows. Just thought you might find it interesting that his story was included in the music lore of the band Blue Oyster Cult. <laughs> Their manager, Sandy Perlman, had written a long sci-fi mythos about Lovecraftian ancient beings, probably of alien origin, who interfered in Earth's destiny. One of the characters in the story was actually Dr. D, whose obsidian mirror or black telescope allowed him to communicate with these beings. At first, Perlman wanted to release a series of concept albums to tell the entire story, but their record company, probably rightfully so, would not let him because they thought it was not commercially viable. But the story of Dr. D and his mirror made it uh, to their first album and and the later uh, Imaginos album, which did attempt to tell the entire story Perlman had written. You can and he includes uh, some links to where we, you can listen to it and where you can look at the the, uh, the lyrics as well as um, the entire story um, is apparently featured on on Wiki if you just look up uh, Imaginos. Anyway, they close by saying, "Just thought this was something you might find interesting." Wow, I I did not know that Blue Oyster Cult went like. I mean, I guess I've never explored Blue Oyster Blue Oyster Cult much beyond the singles, though I did see them live one time. When I was a child. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Well, I was, ta- yeah. I was taken by my dad uh, to see them uh-huh. at like a festival when I was a little kid. So I, I, I have felt of the Oyster Shoals, but they, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I didn't expect that they would go this direction. I, I always thought of them as just kind of like a, a cheesy 70s classic rock band. I, I didn't realize they had like deep connection with, uh, with like sci-fi and horror lore. Well, you know, I think I used to be the the same way. Like, obviously, I knew uh, "Don't Fear the Reaper," mm-hmm. which is uh, which is a great track. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not as into the, the what the middle part that doesn't sound like the song, but oh, uh, yeah, but because it has whole deviation in the middle that that has yet to grab me. But but I love the rest of it. You know, it's a very mm-hmm. snappy tune. Uh, they have a song about Godzilla. They do. They have the Godzilla song. Um, but earlier this this year, actually, I started looking around at Blue Oyster Cult a little bit more, mainly because I I just I don't know I I guess I had a moment where I was just like curious, like well, what else did they do? They clearly did a lot of stuff. And so first of all, I have to say they have some of the most intriguing album covers I've ever seen. Like there's some very beautiful album covers. I'm sure record collectors uh, 
are, are super into to the Blue Oyster Cult in some cases. And uh, I started listening in particular to an album titled Fire of Unknown Origin, which does indeed have just a wonderful bit of cover art by the artist Greg Scott. And uh, it's, it's a pretty interesting album. It's got Burning For You on there. That would be, I guess, oh. the big single. Yeah. But then it also has a track that caught my eyes uh, titled Veteran of the Psychic Wars, because clearly <laughs> there's some sort of world building going on here. And one of the writers on the song is Michael Moorcock, uh, oh. the author that, interestingly enough, came up in an earlier listener mail in this episode. Strange. The author of the Elric books and all. So, yeah, I th- my understanding is that there is a very... Um, you know, the nerddom in Blue Oyster Cult runs deep. Uh, so I haven't gone back in to explore their discography more, but I, um, I, I certainly have them earmarked for, uh, you know, a return journey the next time I'm in, in the mood for, for that era of rock and roll. Well, I will say when I saw them live, I was very young. I don't remember it super well, but I remember, number one, they were heavy. Number two, I remember that was the first time I ever recalled the feeling of uh, being at a concert and feeling the bass from the from the audio in my chest. You know that feeling, oh, yeah. like uh, that's a unique like you feeling. Kind yeah. of feeling in your heart and your lungs, and it's a little bit creepy. Yeah, yeah. And if you and yeah, and it, I guess as a kid, you know, you you know, it's not you know the caffeine or the alcohol or what have you. You know, you're like, oh, this is just the music. I'm not having a heart attack. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, there's a lot to explore with the, with Blue Oyster Cult. They uh, I re- I read that they, they so they have their their members. You can look up and they have their names, but one of them has the name Buck Dharma. Uh, that's the like lead guitar uh, vocals. Uh-huh. And apparently, at one point, like their producer, the record label label was like, "You guys all need some unique names. Let's get you some some trendy names." <laughs> and so they all had to come up with their names. And this guy uh, Donald uh, what Royster came up with Buck Dharma, and everybody else. Came up with a name, but they were like, yeah, we're not using that. But he stuck with Buck Dharma. So I kind of oh, like great. The, the sort of implied comedy of that, where he's like the only one who shows up in costume or something. You oh, know? so good. <laughs> yeah. But it's a cool name, Buck Dharma. I like it. Like, imagine if Slipknot was a band where only one member wore the costume. Yeah, yeah, that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, this next message is about our Weird House Cinema episode on Dr. X. This comes from Alberto. Alberto says, Greetings from Mexico. Hello, Rob and Joe. My name is Alberto. I'm 49 and an IT professional working for Amazon. I listened to your January 8th podcast about Dr. X, and you had a discussion about how to pronounce, and then here, Xavier, I guess, is the standard American pronunciation, or at least the uh, the X-Men pronunciation. Um But Alberto says, I figured I'd tell you additional ways we pronounce X in Spanish and contribute to the confusion. One clarification before I start the explanation. Otherwise, it will be even more confusing. In Spanish, the letter J sounds like the beginning of Hanukkah, for example. And I think uh, by using Hanukkah, he means kind of a guttural H sound. But then he also says, uh, or the beginning of hot or hero. So that's just like a standard English pronunciation H sound. Or in the German number eight, the CH in Acht. So I so I guess it could be like kind of like an an H E K sound or just like a, a ha sound or a ha sound. 
Okay, so Alberto says, English speakers pronounce the X in Mexico as any other word with X. In Spanish, the X can sound as in English, but also as the J in Spanish. As a matter of fact, Mexico used to be spelled Mexico with a J, and nowadays, even though it's written with an X, sounds like the Spanish J. In Spanish, there's also Javier, which is written Xavier sometimes, as in Francisco Xavier, or Xavier, or Javier, (laughs) Catholic missionary from the uh, 16th century XVI, but is pronounced as a regular J. Many words inherited from pre-Hispanic cultures, e.g. Aztecs, a.k.a. Mexicas, Mayans, Olmecs, uh, have the letter X written and mostly pronounced as S at the beginning of a word or SH in the middle. For example, Xochitl, a woman's name, uh, Mijote, some pit barbecued dish, Milco, a place near Mexico City. I discovered your podcast while looking for science-related ones and love your science discussion, but even more, the non-science talks about literature, movies, artifacts, etc. Really awesome content. Congratulations. I live in a city called Cholula in the state of Puebla. I always listen to your podcast while I'm out running in the morning, so as a Pavlovian dog, I now relate your voices to the need for exercising. An interesting fact, I usually go to run around a pyramid near my house. The pyramid is buried and has a church at the top built by the Spaniards during the conquest. Seemingly, it is the largest volume pyramid in the world. And this is a, he attached a picture for us to look at, which is, it's gorgeous. And I would love to visit this pyramid someday, but it is, it's known as the Great Pyramid of Cholula or, um, I'm going to try to say the Nahuatl word, uh, I hope I got close there. Yeah, well, the, the, the image that they included is, is quite captivating. I love hearing that uh, our voices are now your, your, your Pavlov's bell for feeding the dog, except it's exercise. I feel honored. Yeah, it, that's, it, that's in stark contrast to the people who listen to the show to go to sleep at night. Yeah. <laughs> All right, here's another bit of listener mail. This one comes to us from Danny. Hi, Robert and Joe. Thanks for your recent Weird House Cinema episode about Chopping Mall. My wife and I were turned on to this movie because one of our favorite bands has a song called Killbot 2000. After we learned that it was a reference, uh, what it was a reference to, we watched the movie, and it has remained a cult classic of ours ever since. The band, by the way, is called Murder by Death, another classic movie nod, and you should definitely check them out. Dark and broody, but kind of folksy, westernish, uh, piano, cello, rock. It's a genre. Are you familiar with this group, Joe? I've heard of them, but I don't think I've listened to them. Okay. Yeah, yeah me neither. I'll have to check them out. Uh, they continue. I also had a general question about your tastes in movies. I wonder if either of you have ever reflected on why you're drawn to the weird, sometimes not great films that you love. Do you like modern mainstream cinema at all? Can you get into the MCU or Academy Award nominees? Not saying you should, just curious uh, what it is that brings you back to these sorts of films time and time again. I first questioned this while listening to your episode about Medusa and Perseus, and you kept referencing Clash of the Titans, but not the modern 2010 remake, but the 1981 cheesy version. I'm not saying the newer version is better, but it holds pretty true to the original mythical stories and has much better production value. Is there any reason you were drawn to the original in this instance? Is there maybe a scientific study that tries to demonstrate why some of us fall in love with these weird movies or why we develop our tastes in art at all? Or do we just chalk it all up to nostalgia? Whatever the reason, keep it up. I love listening to your analysis of the old weird stuff. If I've seen the film you're talking about, I can uh, revel in the fact that somebody else enjoys it. And if I haven't seen it, it immediately goes on my to-watch list. Thanks, Danny. 
I think this is a really interesting question about why some people are drawn to I don't know why different people are drawn to different kinds of movies with the uh, example of the clash of the Titans, 2010 remake versus the original one. And like what represents the difference in taste there? I think you have absolutely, at least for me. And I think I'm sure for you too, Rob, I identified a strong tendency of ours, which is to prefer movies that are more like the 1981 version. And I think for me, that difference is, I I just am more interested in paying attention to movies that, uh, however flawed, feel more handmade as opposed to feeling slick. I feel like I would rather watch something that is imperfect, but uh, a kind of, I don't know, interesting labor of love where I can kind of... uh, where, where if we're talking about special effects that I can I can see the art going into it as opposed to something that looks very realistic and professionally done and high budget and you can't see any of the zippers or seams. Yeah, no, I think I think that makes sense. Um, I mean, it's it's hard to draw a fine line sometimes on on what one likes and doesn't like. I know for for my own part, I do I am drawn to a lot of these old movies and certainly nostalgia is a is a big part of it. There are these films that I'm nostalgic for or, or even if I have never seen it before, I, I oftentimes remember the VHS uh box or something, you know, so I have some connection to it. I have some version of it stuck in my mind. Um but uh yeah, I mean I, I like I agree with the the sort of handmade qualities. You know, the there's something about you know about feel about being able to to feel the craftsmanship of the piece and in and in often oftentimes it's uneven craftsmanship you know and you get to sort of focus on the things that that really work and the things that don't i find that sometimes pictures like this they allow me more room to work my imagination mm-hmm. as opposed to something that is slicker and more like structurally whole uh, to a certain degree yeah um well so a- another example that comes up in in Danny's message here is um Danny asks about whether we get into like the MCU. I think that's Marvel movies, right? The Marvel Mm -hmm. cinematic universe. And my feeling about the Marvel movies I've seen is that, uh, there are some that I've seen that I, you know, really enjoyed watching. Like, uh, I, I like the Iron Man movies. I like black Panther, like other ones I didn't like as much. And just see, like I watched one of the Avengers movies one time and I just honestly found it rather boring, uh, but in general, I feel like that whole class of like high budget, slick production, uh, with lots of lots of CGI that looks good in the sense that it looks realistic, I guess, or it blends seamlessly into the action of the film, and you don't have to think about the effects as special effects; they just sort of automatically happen. I feel like when I watch a lot of those movies, they're just like you know, I watch them and they're okay and I don't hate them, but I don't really have any thoughts about them. It's just kind of like, well, that happened. But when I watch one of these old flawed movies, my brain just kind of lights up with all kinds of thoughts and I find them interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I I can definitely relate to that. Um, I mean, I, I'm into some of them, the MCU titles. I liked the, um, I liked Thor Ragnarok. I thought that was a lot of fun. Mm Uh, it, it certainly had more weirdness to it than uh, some of these other films that they've put out. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely down for the forthcoming uh, Blade movie. I'm always, always uh, in, in for a good Blade movie, uh, no matter who's playing him. Um, and then, of course, I'm, I'm super into Star Wars films, which are, you know, you can certainly compare them to the MCU. Uh, certainly, the, the the modern Star Wars films, anyway, because they're, you know, very much this industry of creating content. So, you know, I I I like modern mainstream films as well. Um, 
So anyway, I mean, we could basically go on and on about, about all this. And I guess we, in a way, we'll continue to go on and on like this in our Weird House Cinema episodes, as we often consider these, uh, you know, weirder films or films from the past. Though I, I, I do hope that we'll also cover some more recent weird films on, on that series. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm sure we will as we proceed. Yeah. All right, this next one comes from Joe, and this is also about Weird House Cinema. This goes back to the Not of This Earth episode. Uh, Joe says, hey, guys, I've been quite enjoying your Weird House Cinema episodes. It's been a fascinating exploration of both the creativity of and limitations faced by low-budget filmmakers. As you described the bio-guillotine assassin monster deployed by the villain in Not of This Earth, I immediately recalled one of the stranger beings, which is of this earth, or more precisely, this abyssal plane— the vampire squid. This gelatinous bioluminescent creature is neither quite a squid nor an octopus, but is a curious in-between evolutionary remnant. I, uh, it was discovered as part of a fascinating early 20th century expedition to detect deep sea life. It may or may not have been the inspiration for the creature in the movie, but the resemblance is uncanny. The history of deep sea exploration could make a fascinating subject for an episode all its own. Beliefs have evolved over the centuries and been confronted with reality as technological breakthroughs have permitted more and more thorough exploration. The vampire squid is a suitable mascot for the eerie, alien, dangerous, and little understood ecosystem that persists thousands of meters below the surface. Keep up the great work. Joe. Well, Joe, if you are interested in in us doing episodes about the the history of deep sea ex- exploration, I feel like you should go a few years back into our archives where uh for for a year or so we were doing a lot of that. Yeah, we did we were looking at the bathosphere, uh looking at you know various uh uh you know mythological takes mm-hmm. on the undersea world. And uh, you know, I'm sure we'll go back as well. We also uh conducted an interview with a deep sea marine biologist uh, uh Diva Amon. Uh, yeah. back uh, a couple of years back. And that was a really insightful uh, yeah. interview, you know, getting to talk to somebody who's, whose work is devoted to deep sea uh, environments and has actually uh, descended in submersibles into the depths. Uh, I highly recommend that interview. Yeah, she's involved in deep sea conservation and uh, she was a really wonderful guest. And maybe we can have her back on the show someday. Yeah, yeah. All right, this next one comes to us from Adam. Dear Joe and Robert, I've been listening to your podcast for years now, and today finally had something to add. When listening to your Weird House Cinema episode, absolutely look forward to it every week on Dr. X, I nearly jumped out of my seat when I heard the first two quotes from the movie. I immediately recognized them from a song, No Awareness, on one of my most beloved albums, Dr. Octagon. Oh! I don't listen to as much hip-hop now as I did in my youth, but the joy of coming across a famous sample of a, uh, for a well-known song is intense. Uh, are you uh, that familiar with uh, Dr. Octagon? Yeah, I mean, it's been a long time, but yeah, I, I, I've listened to this. Okay. I, I know Dr. Octagon has come up in mixes for me, but uh, I haven't done a lot of, I think, sp- specific diving on, on this uh, particular album. Uh, anyway, they continue. Cool Keith, if you are not aware, is the Weird House cinema of rap. Prolific in albums and word usage, he's completely self-aware and weird. Almost every album he releases with a new nom de plume. This includes names such as Dr. Octagon, Dr. Doom, 10 by 47 on the Cinebites album, Black Elvis, Jimmy Steele, uh, Jimmy Steele time, to, or Jimmy Steele to name a few. They are often genre heavy. 
1996 album, Dr. Octagon, was my first introduction to his music, and I've been a fan of his strange music ever since. Uh, so, um, yeah, I'm going to have to uh, dive into Dr. Octagon's uh, work a bit more, uh, because certainly when it comes to, to hip-hop, I, I really do enjoy some of the weirder stuff out there. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I love the work of... Uh, of the, the the late um, MF Doom mm-hmm. uh, did a lot of really interesting stuff. I like Czar uh, Face is another uh, act that I've uh, I've enjoyed. So this is right up my alley. Anyway, they continue. On a different note, if you ever do an episode about the uh, Kalevala, as mentioned a month or so ago, please check out the Kalevalapug, an Estonian epic tale. It has the same Balto-Finnic origins, but since the cultures and languages split thousands of years ago, the tales are quite wildly different and are fun to compare. I know I'm rambling. One last thing. In a previous episode, you mentioned uh, the, the Sampo or Sapo in the Kalevala. Apparently, the Sapo is a mythical weapon in the Chinese tradition as well. And the fact that this mysterious magical tool is found in both cultures is explored in the 2006 Finnish Chinese film, The Jade Warrior. It's crouching tiger meets northern European cinema and is a real delight. Always looking forward to your content. Be well, Adam. Well, that sounds exciting. Um, yeah, yeah. That I, I'm gonna. I think I am vaguely aware of the. Like, I remember seeing some promotion of this online. I don't know if it had a U.S. release or or what, but it's it's ringing a bell. But I don't think I've seen it. You have my attention. I, I may have to look that up. All right, we're out of time here. We're past time. Um, the mailbot is beginning to melt down a bit, so we need to unplug him from the wall and cool off for about a week. But we'll be back with more listener mail. In the meantime, if you want to listen to other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, Stuff to Blow Your Mind, Listener Mail, uh, Weird House Cinema, anything, it's all in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed, which you can find wherever you get your podcasts and wherever that happens to be. Just rate, review, and subscribe. Great way to support the show. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nichols. Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.